0: it's a recipe passed down from Malone's for generations it's probably the thing I do best oh poor Kevin man do you hurt for him right now that's kind of embarrassing to watch I think I've done that sort of thing uh, that, that's like the family recipe passed down from generations this is his big moment And he's so excited about it, and very Kevin-like, if you watch the series. He spills it all on the floor. And um, you got to ask the question, how do you get that back into the pot? You know, I mean, if that's all poured out on the floor, what do you do to get it? And and if you do get it back in the pot, who wants to eat it? Anybody? Yeah, someone raised their hand here, the first service, and this service too. So, Uh, not me, not me. There's something about that that... um, that, that chili's ruined. And I'll, I'll tell you where that fits into the message here in just a few minutes. But um, what I wanted to do was to talk to you today, uh, just a very simple message about how we can know for sure we know Jesus, okay? Just how do you know for sure that you know Jesus? Uh, I, as I think about that question, my mind goes back to my um, early days as a believer in uh, 1971. I accepted Christ after several years of uh, really headed the wrong direction in life and just kind of like an unrestrained approach to life doing whatever I wanted to do and I experienced that very first night when I opened my heart to Jesus, I experienced this incredible sense of release from guilt i mean seriously it was like i it was like I felt like I had a weight on my shoulders that when I prayed and opened my heart to Jesus, it just felt like these weights fell off, and I felt free. I just had this wonderful sense of freedom and joy, and I would take the Bible with me. I'd walk out into the woods, and uh, I grew up in a small town. I had grown up spending most of my time as a kid in the woods. I'd go out, and I'd find a great spot, just sit and read the Bible and just Talk to God and just enjoy that that relationship with Him. But you know, it wasn't too long. Even in this period where I was experiencing like joy and freedom, that a voice started to speak in my mind, and um, I, I assumed it was myself. You know, just my own thoughts because it was always phrased in the first person. But the questions like this: Was I really saved? did I really connect with God? Or maybe there was something, maybe I didn't pray the right way, and so I didn't really connect with God. Or maybe I didn't have enough faith, or maybe somehow I had the wrong kind of faith, and therefore hadn't really connected with God. And then another thought would come in periodically, and that was maybe after this first couple of months with me, God has decided he really doesn't like me that much after all. You know, maybe God's still mad at me for some of the things I did to hurt other people before I I came to Jesus. And and I remember struggling through those questions, and I I found some answers, all right? And I want to share those with you today. And I do want to say this, as we ask that question, how can I know for sure I know Jesus? uh, a, A big part of the answer just ...comes up in the Christmas story. Just as we begin to read the Christmas story of how Jesus came... ...and things that uh, were prophesied about who Jesus was... ...and who Jesus is... ...and things that were spoken to people by the angels in their visitations... ...when they came to announce the birth of Christ... ...there's so much there that points us in the direction of understanding... ...how we can really know for sure we know Jesus. In fact... Uh, This uh, announcement of the angel to Joseph. You, You know, Joseph was the husband of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus. He was Jesus' stepfather, actually. And Joseph and Mary were engaged to be married. They hadn't been married yet. And so during that engagement period, before they had come together as husband and wife, Mary became pregnant. And it, it became an issue, obviously, for Joseph because he's the prospective bridegroom and he knows that it wasn't him. And so he, the, the very confusing situation because he also knows Mary and knows that she's a godly young woman. And, and there's confusion and pain. And Joseph is contemplating um, ending the whole thing. But he's going to do it quietly in a way that won't embarrass or shame Mary any more than what she's already going to experience because of the situation. And so as he's thinking about that and as he's contemplating that, an angel came to him and spoke to him. And one of the things the angel said to him was this. As you, you look in Matthew 121, he says to, to to Joseph, he says, "You don't have to worry about this. You can marry. You can get married to to this young woman, Mary, because what what's happened to her is something God did." Okay, and then he goes on to say, "She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now, the very name Jesus means savior, and he's going to save his people from their sins and so Jesus's very purpose in coming was, was it wasn't to give us a good example of how we could you know be nice to other people although the life of Jesus does show us what we were created to be but his ultimate purpose in coming was to take the whole sin problem out of the way so that you and I could come to know God the Father. That's what Jesus came to do, to remove the barriers so we could come into a relationship with God the Father. And so Jesus came for the very specific purpose of saving people. Now, when I use the word save, earlier I talked about knowing Jesus. Do I really know Jesus? Did I, uh, I'm using that synonymously with several other terms that you get from the Bible or that you hear people use to describe um, what it means to know God. So one would be know Jesus. Do I know Jesus? Another one that is the equivalent of that uh, almost is am I born again? You'll hear people talk about being born again. What that means is the entrance into the Jesus life. Am I a child of God? Another, another phrase, another term that can be used. Or am I saved? Have I, have I experienced salvation? Am I saved? And another one has to do with eternal life. Do I have eternal life? And, um, and, and this might be an oversimplification, but uh, am I going to heaven when I die? Do I know for sure I'm going to heaven when I die? Now, for some reason, for my generation, that was a very pertinent, impactful question. And I think today, it, the theology, my theology has shifted enough that that's not the first question or the most important question. I would look at it like this. Heaven is the final destination But it's not the goal. The goal is that God put us here on this planet to rule this planet. That's what he did with Adam and Eve. He put them here and he said, now you rule over this planet, subdue it, and you manage it in my my place as my representatives. And Adam and Eve decided, made the conscious choice to turn away from God as their Lord and to turn to Satan to be Lord. Lord. And so they literally gave away what they had been given from God to Satan. And that's when the kingdom of darkness came into this world. And so the whole world lives in darkness because Adam and Eve gave the kingdom away. But Jesus came to restore what was taken. He came to take back what the enemy had taken from God. Now that first and foremost means The human race, human beings. God wants us back. He wants us back in relationship with him. But not just so we can go to heaven when we die, okay? Not this kind of like U.S. Christian idea that we're all living pretty good lives already and all we really need to do is to know we're going to heaven when we die someday and then we're pretty good and life is going to be good and that's why Jesus came to to help all of us good American Christians to know that we're going to go to heaven when we die. Jesus came to release heaven to earth. That was his purpose. He came to open up the windows of heaven, and as he told us to pray in the Lord's prayer, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. When? When we all die and go to heaven? No. Let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was a prayer for today. That was Jesus' prayer. That was his ultimate purpose in coming was to bring us into the kingdom of God, to bring the kingdom of God into us, and then we as kingdom people would live on this planet the way God intended us to live. We would be restored to relationship with him. We would be restored to what he created us to be, and even better than that, even better than what we were created to be, and that we would be his agents on this planet, to release his kingdom here today. That's the whole purpose of it. So when I ask, am I saved? Do I know Jesus? Have, am I born again? And all of those questions, the underlying question is, uh, or, or the, the implication is, have I moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? And when you start to think about it that way, it, it really gives salvation a different tone, It's a different tone because for me to come out of the kingdom of darkness and to come into the kingdom of light is going to require some dramatic and drastic changes. It means I've got to be saved from this kingdom of darkness. I've got to be rescued from it. I've got to be pulled out of it and it's going to be pulled out of me because not only am I born into a kingdom of darkness and not only do I live in a kingdom of darkness, it lived in me. And so somehow I've got to be changed at the core so that I can move from this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and become a kingdom of God person. And so when we look at this question and we ask, um, you know, how can I know that I'm saved? There's an entire book of the Bible that was written for that purpose to answer that question, that question alone. But before we go to that, I want to look at another verse. What, um, what the angel spoke to Joseph, Jesus himself repeated uh, many times. But in Luke 19.10, is one of the places it was recorded, where Jesus said this. He said, the son of man. And that was a term he used to describe himself most often. Son of man. Uh, meaning God became man. He's the son of God who became the son of man. And as the son of God, perfect deity, eternal in the fullness of all that that means, as the son of man, perfect humanity in all that that means. And somehow in a mystery we don't understand, the two became one. He wasn't 50% God and 50% man. He was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. And I mean, if you just stop right there, that blows your mind. You can't, we can't comprehend that any more than we can grasp the Trinity. But that's what happened. That's what happened. He says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. All right, to seek. Listen, you and I might think, Well, I've been seeking God. Well, He's been seeking you. <laughs> that's more pertinent. I mean, it's good that you're seeking him. And we should seek him. And we should open our hearts and, oh, Jesus, I want to know you. You know, we should seek him. But you need to know he is seeking you. And when you know he's seeking you, then you seeking him becomes just, you know, something that you know is going to be completed. Because if he's seeking me and I'm seeking him, I'm not going to meet him halfway. It's like I'm going to turn around and I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to seek Jesus and I take one step and there he is. Cuz he's seeking me. And so he's not hard to find. Okay, he's not hard to find. He's seeking you. He wants you. He desperately desires relationship with you. But he says here to seek and to save the lost. And it's really interesting what what all's behind this little phrase because you could translate it that which was lost. Which means he's coming for the kingdom. He's coming for God. He's he's seeking to take this planet back for God's kingdom. And that means you and me, we're included in that because because God created us to be kingdom people. But when you look at it in in the personal sense, it, it does mean he's seeking us to be saved. He's seeking the lost. Now, the word lost here is not the same word that you would use if you were going to describe somebody that forgot their directions at home, and they don't know which direction to turn. You know, we know it's in Columbus. We know I'm supposed to take a left turn somewhere, but forgot the directions. And I don't know if you've tried to use um, little navigation tools. Lori and I recently traveled to North Carolina where the car had a navigation system in it. I had my phone set, and Lori had hers set. And there were times where all three of them were talking to us at once. And they were telling us different things. Turn left at the next, turn right at the next intersection, go straight at the next. And we finally just boiled it all down to one so we could. But he's not talking about that kind of lost. The word lost here is actually a very powerful word. It's the word apollyon. And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you know in Revelation 19.10, Satan is called Apollyon, the destroyer. What this word means is he's seeking to save that which was destroyed. He's seeking to bring back that which was lost. He's seeking to bring back that which was defiled, that which was ruined, the devastated. You know, as I read this and I studied this word, my mind went to some of the um, History Channel shows I've watched about World War II and the end of World War II, and some of the bombed-out cities, and and you just see whole landscapes just shells of buildings, and and it, it was ruined. That area was devastated. It was lost. That's what's happened to the earth. That's what Jesus came to reverse. That's what he came to take back. That's what he's seeking. And, and when we say ruined, uh, I showed the video about Kevin's chili because I love chili. And that's kind of heartbreaking to see that all spill out onto the ground, you know. And uh, I don't know if that's, God probably felt a little bit worse than I did about the chili when, when the fall of humanity occurred. But um, it was ruined, and how do you get that back in the pot? How does it get fixed? You know, the other angel came and talked, angel came in another occasion and talked to Mary. And um, he, he, he told Mary, yeah, you're going to have a baby boy. This baby boy's going to be great. He's going to be called the son of the most high. And he is going to rule David's kingdom forever. He's going to be a king that's going to have a never ending kingdom. And you know what I think is funny about this whole past, that whole thing? Mary never doubts any of that. Yeah. She, never que- she never says, oh, I'm unworthy to be the mother of such a great person. You, can't, you have to choose someone else. I'm not good enough. She didn't have any self-identity issues or self-focus. She wasn't so focused on herself that she was going to come back like that. You know, the only question she had, she was all good with all that. Okay, I, I know the Old Testament. You're talking about the Messiah. Wow, that is incredible. That's awesome. Messiah is coming. But wait a second. I'm a virgin. So how's that happen? And so what the angel says to her is, don't worry, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you. Okay? And what is born of you is going to be born, it's going to be God. What's born of you is going to be from the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say this, for nothing is impossible with God. Do we have that verse? Okay, there we go. For nothing is impossible with God. You know, that's one of the, I think, most interesting and powerful verses in the Bible because it is so hard to translate. Basically, it says, for not impossible is anything God says. That's the exact word order and the way. So what it's saying is anything that God utters has within it The full power to accomplish what he has spoken. So nothing God says is impossible. If God says it, then don't even think impossible. It's going to happen. If God says it, it can happen. And so he's bringing this whole thing of the power of the Holy Spirit right into the the whole birth narrative of Jesus, and that carries throughout the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus... When he enters into his public ministry what 's he do? He gets baptized, and what happens? Heaven opens, Holy Spirit comes down on him in the form of a dove, it looks like a dove coming down on him and probably what that means is not that it was an, a literal bird or a literal dove, but there was a visible presence of the Holy Spirit, and he moved like a dove that 's what it means he He moved like with the grace and the fluidity. It, Of A dove would have moved down and just alighted on Jesus. And then Jesus goes off into the wilderness for 40 days to fast and pray. And it says, when he came out of that period, he came back filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So here is the very Son of God entering into his ministry. And rather than saying, well, look, I'm God's Son. I can do whatever I want to do, you know blow stuff up or whatever. I mean, instead of that, he comes back and he enters into his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's the Holy Spirit who brings the kingdom. Heaven opens. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So heaven opens over Jesus and who comes? Holy Spirit comes and rests on him. Holy Spirit is the one who brings the kingdom. Jesus is the one who made it possible. Holy Spirit is the actual agent who comes and releases the kingdom to us, the rule of God, the life of God, to to come back to this planet. And so Jesus walks in the power of the Holy Spirit and lives in the full power of the Holy Spirit. And he says that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He makes that possible for us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when it comes to this whole idea of recouping that which was ruined, it takes the power of God. There was a place in the Gospels where Jesus made this statement in response to a young man who had come to him and asked him, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And and they have their interaction and the guy goes away and it says he went away sad because um, he he didn't want to. He didn't want to release, let go of the things in his life, all the wealth he had, in order to follow Jesus. He, he, that was still going to stay number one in his heart. He couldn't remove that from his heart to make Jesus number one in his heart. And then Jesus turns to the apostles and says, man, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. Now, we, I know we think about that and you think, oh, well, he's talking about like people that we see. In, now, in America, that applies to 80% of us. Okay, that, that applies just about to all of us. We all have so much here. We have so many things and so much to really to, to grasp for and to reach for if we don't have it already. That it is hard to take all of that and say, all right, that's not going to be my God anymore. I'm going to pull that out of my heart. I'm going to throw that aside. Jesus, you come. You be my God. You be central in my heart and in my life. And Jesus said, it's really hard when people have wealth to do that because they have something that they're finding comfort and strength in and it's hard to release it. And so what Jesus said next is, he said, yeah, with man, yeah, with man, that, that sounds hard. But with God, all things are possible. He said, with God, that's not hard. That's not hard. So when it comes to restoration, it's all about the power of God. It's not about us. Think of this. Let's say you have a, a famous painting, a um, Van Gogh, and something happens to it where you, didn't, you kept it in the basement or something, and there's part of the painting that fades or that chips off. What would be the very best thing you could do to restore that? Really, the only thing you could do to restore it to original condition would be to have the original artist come back and, and paint it and take care of it. And fix it and repair it and restore it and renew it. And for you and for me, salvation, this renewal that happens, this movement from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light can only be accomplished by God and his power. And that's what Jesus died on the cross to release. He died on the cross to release God's power so that you and I can come to know God the Father and our hearts are changed. Our lives are changed. Now, in 1 John, this uh, this place where John talks about uh, the the new life that we have. And by the way, John was the closest follower, to, closest of the apostles with Jesus of any. He knew him best. In fact, it says in one place that John was the apostle Jesus loved. So everybody knew John was his favorite. Can you picture that? Jesus Jesus had favorites. Do you know that? Do you know why? Because human beings... Need intimacy, and you can 't be intimate with everyone you can 't if you 're married, your wife should be your primary intimacy. If not, then you have some other friends that are of primary intimacy. but Jesus loved John, and John knew Jesus and he knew the love of Jesus in fact, in the night jesus they had the, the last supper it says that John sat and he leaned on jesus shoulder. That's, the, that's how close they were, and that's how they ate. He sat right beside Jesus. So John never had any doubts about God's love for him or about Jesus' love for him. I think he was different than Peter. You know, Peter is this kind of like klutzy guy that's always putting his foot in his mouth and stepping in and doing stuff when it wasn't the right time. And so Peter, the night Jesus is betrayed, Peter actually denies he knows Jesus. And then he lives with the immense guilt of that until Jesus is resurrected from the dead and comes back to him and releases him from that guilt and frees him from that. But John, he's, just, he's, lived, he's had these years of intimacy with Jesus, and now he writes, he's writing some, writing some books of the Bible. He doesn't necessarily know he's writing the Bible at the time, but he writes the Gospel of John. You know, in case you don't know, there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they just take the historical approach to outlining Jesus' life. And that's what that's they just tell the story. They all tell it from a different angle. And and so you get different you get you get the full picture. It's like 3D instead of just a plain picture. But then John comes in and writes his gospel. And his gospel is written with a purpose. He's writing to convince people that Jesus is who he said he was. And so when he writes these letters, he wrote three letters also, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So he's writing these in historical context to real people. And the first letter he writes in John 5, verse 12 and 13, he says this. This is the end of the book. So here he's telling us why he wrote it. He says, "'He who has the Son has life. "'He who does not have the Son does not have life. "'I write these things to you "'who believe in the name of the Son of God, "'so that you may know that you have eternal life.'" And so John says, I'm writing this to you, you believers. You believe, just like I had believed, but I wasn't sure I believed the right way, I wasn't sure I had said the prayer right, or blah, 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 on and on and on, all the questions. He says, I'm writing to you so that you can know you have eternal life. But the first thing he says is eternal life is this. Do you have Jesus? Do you have the Son? Do you have him? John knew what it was. He knew what that meant because he had had this intimate relationship with Jesus. And it continued on and and even became more intimate after Jesus' resurrection because the Holy Spirit came to actually live inside John now. And reveal more of Jesus to John than he had known even when he knew John, when he knew Jesus in life, and so he knows this intimacy. He's saying, "If you have Jesus, you have life." Now, um, Lori and I, uh, we don't we, we get to visit the hospital very rarely. Just don't have time to do that very often. But once in a while, something will happen, and we'll feel led to led to you know feel like God's telling us to go, and, and we did that not long ago. And, um, I normally don't share fresh stories like this. Okay. Um, just because you don't want to ever tell anything that someone's sitting out there. And I don't want you to think that if you share something with me, I'm going to be up here telling your story next week. So happens very, very rarely, but having gotten to know this guy, he wouldn't mind even if I told you his name, which I'm not going to do. Okay. But, uh, we went and visited this gentleman and, um, Lori had to go to the nurse's station. He needed something, and so she left. And right at the beginning of our conversation, um, he said, well, he said, I, you know, I haven't been to your church, but I you know, have family that has, and they love you, and they love the church. And I think you know, from hearing from them, you, must, you have a great church. But you need to know, the difference between you and me is you believe in God, and I don't. And you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm like an atheist. I don't believe. And, you know, by the time he was done saying that, I just thought, I really like this guy. Man, he's just getting right to the point. And it was with such a wonderful heart. It wasn't like a, and I'm here to debate you right now, or anything like that. It was just a, hey, let's just get our cards out on the table. And so we had this wonderful time talking and interacting over things and and, you know, like, yeah, the church... The, 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 the organized church has done a lot of harm in the world. I have to agree with you on that one. And, and other things like that. But by the end of it, um, I, I said, you know, there was a place in the Bible where Jesus looked at the guy and he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And I said, I want to say to you right now, after talking to you for this last 20 minutes or whatever, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I said, what's going to happen is you're going to be lying here, and you're going to just feel something happen. You're going to feel something come on you, and it's going it's to feel like something you've never felt before. It's going to be the love of God, His presence, the Holy Spirit. When that happens, all you have to do is say yes to Jesus. It's all you have to do, is just say yes to Jesus. Or you might have a dream and where God speaks to you, and all you have to do, even in the dream, all you have to do is just say yes to Jesus. To Jesus, And that's so true. That's it right there. You don't have to have a lifetime. You don't have to. It's not like I have to get before Peter and the golden gates and say, well, I've served. I've gone to church for 40 years and I've given this much money and I've done this and done that and done that. And I mean, those are all good things. Going to church, giving, we should give and and we should serve. But that's not what it's not like that gets us into anything. What gets us in from that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light is saying yes to Jesus. And when that happens, then the impossible happens. God changes us and he moves us from one realm to the other and we've got Jesus. He's got us and we've got him. And that's life. That's eternal life. And John says, now I wrote this whole book so you guys would know this. So you would know that you know him. And I've gone through the book. I, I think you could probably go through and find a dozen evidences that John uh, identifies. I'm just going to pull out five. We're just going to touch on them quickly for the, for the rest of our time together this morning. But the first one is, um, is this. And, and what we're asking here is the question, what is the evidence of salvation? And the first one is in First John 2, 9 and 10. It says this, whoever says he is in the light... There's another phrase, like saved, born again, child of God, in the light. Uh, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. So this first evidence is a new love for people, new love for people. You know, when Jesus came into me, he came into me. He entered, he came into me. Changed me, and now I have him in me, and he loved people, <laughs> so whether I loved people before or not is irrelevant; He loves people and he 's in me, so i 'm going to love people now and I know for myself this was the one that really triggered uh, a sense of security and confidence in those first few months of of knowing Jesus. a friend of mine who um, wasn 't a believer, but he found some book about God, and it was torn in half I remember and he gave it to me because I was the new, new Jesus guy around. And uh, I opened it up one day, and I read this verse and a sentence that said, one of the evidences of that you really know Jesus is that you love other believers. Now, I think it extends beyond just Christians to others, but particularly. And I thought, wait a second. You know, for the last four years, five years longer, everything I have done has been based on me trying to be as cool as I can be and hang out with as cool of people as I can and have them think I'm cool. I mean, that was the whole deal entirely. And now, where am I getting my friendship from? It was the regular Baptist church in East Brady, Pennsylvania. Probably had 40 people, maybe 50 on a good Sunday morning. And I was going on Wednesday nights and spending time with what I considered at the time to be old ladies. Okay. They, they weren't really old, I want to tell you that. But they seemed old to me. And a couple of men, and they were not cool. I got to tell you, they were like the opposite end of cool. But I loved them. And I, I couldn't wait to go be with them. And we talked about the Bible together and about Jesus, and we prayed for each other, and it just built my heart up. And I loved these people. And I read that and I thought, Wow, I've changed. Something I, you know, I didn't know this language at the time, but I've moved out of this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and the kingdom of light has moved into me. And that's that, that, isn't that cool, you know? And then the, the first thing he says about hating, um, you know, that's pretty pretty absolute. And, uh, you know, we think of hating in the sense of like, you know, I'd like to do bad things to you, but, um, and it could be that, but it doesn't have to be that. Jesus defined hating as gossiping about people, as calling other people names or, or a derisive things that we say to other people or about other people. And so you can really translate that right back to my heart and ask, do I think derisive thoughts about others? Do I have a cynical spirit where I'm always looking at other people and thinking, a ah, loser, or what are they? Yeah, man, people are stupid. Or, you know, why isn't everybody smart? I Me mean, if I'm thinking that, then I'm falling into this category of hatred. Might not be specifically hatred as we would think of it. but. The love is the positive thing. And if I'm falling into the other thing, then what does that require? Well, it's as simple as, Jesus, forgive me for that. That's wrong. I don't want to be that way. If you already know Jesus, you just have to admit that's wrong. I don't want to be that way. If you haven't come to know Jesus yet, then Jesus, I need you in my life. Come into me. And he'll come in and save you and give you a new heart. But the second thing is this. um, A new grasp of truth. New Grasp of Truth, it says, The anointing you received from Him, this is First John two twenty seven, lives in you, and you have no need for anyone but Him to show you the way. For His anointing teaches you about everything and is the absolute truth. So just as He has taught you, rest in Him. So first I look at it and I say, well, do I have a new love for people? Do I have a new love for people? And secondly, I look at it and say, well, do I have some new concept of truth? Is there a new concept that has entered my world and my mind? And maybe before I thought this screwy way, but now I can see that was wrong and I can see this is right. And so it's really, it is that what was happening there was they had some false teachers that were trying to draw them away from Jesus. And so John is saying, look, Holy Spirit in you is telling you who Jesus is and how to keep going towards him. Ignore all that. You don't need that. You don't need people to come in and tell you that they have some superior knowledge that you need. doesn't mean we don't need teachers within the body of Christ. That's not, he's not saying that. That's a legitimate gift in the body of Christ. But he's saying th- those, those voices from the outside. I think one of the things he's saying is that... Uh, <laughs> We don't have to be constantly searching out the latest and newest technique or methodology to overcome this habit or to overcome that. I'm not saying that there's nothing that you can learn from those things, but we don't need to be eager for it. We don't need to be hungry for it because I've got Jesus. I know the direction. I know the path to take. I've got Jesus. And I think this as well expands into the whole concept of my attitude towards the Bible, towards the Word of God. And again, not that I'm going to understand every nuance in the Bible. There's hard things to understand in the Bible. Actually, the Apostle Peter says that about Paul. He says, the Apostle Paul, in some of his writings, and he writes some things that are pretty hard to understand, said this. So, but, but the parts I do understand, do they feed my heart? You know, if, with the parts you don't understand, skip those parts. Read about Jesus in the Gospels. Read about the book. And does it feed my heart? Because if, if I'm really tied into Jesus and he's in me, then his word's going to feed my heart. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Well, the next thing is this. Um, a new heart to follow Jesus. Uh, he says this, verse chapter 3 and verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Wow, that's a powerful statement, isn't it? If I've really been born of God, then the lifestyle I used to live, I can't, not only do I have to say, oh, that's bad, I can't do that anymore, I've got to resist it. But I I need to have something inside of me saying, man, why did I want to do that in the first place? why do I want to live that way? It doesn't mean that I'm not going to ever sin or that I'm not going to even fall into things from the past, but it means that those things cannot grip me and determine the direction of my life any longer. I can walk in freedom from that. And the direction of my life now is towards Jesus. And if I stumble, if I fall off the path, I'm going to get back up and get back on the path again. That's, that's just evidence of the fact that I've really been saved, that I keep on going. And this whole idea, he says, his seed abides in us. That means his DNA, his spiritual DNA. He's implanted. And, you know, DNA controls everything. I don't know if, it's, if you got a DNA transplant, you, you, you know, and, and uh, never mind. Sometimes illustrations on the fly, just you just need to leave them alive. I'll just let that one go. Okay, so, but we have his DNA. And that means that's going to control who we are as we yield to him. That's what yielding to the Holy Spirit is. It's just yielding. It's just abiding in him, living in him, and allowing him to, to move out, out more and more and more in us so that more and more we become more like Jesus. And so um, we have a new heart to follow Jesus. Uh, just real, uh, I'm going to say this, I don't want to, just, um, okay, okay. There are a lot of recovery programs around that are helping people, uh, they're getting uh, getting moving out of things that they've been trapped in. Um, but one thing, one contention I have is this, that most of the recovery programs require that you identify the problem as part of who you are. That you say, not only do I have a problem, I have a problem drinking, controlling drinking, but... I'm an alcoholic, or I am an addict, or I am a rageaholic, or on and on and on. And no doubt, admitting the problem is a big part of hitting bottom. And I'm, I'm for that. You know, you hit that point where you got to turn things around. But if you know Jesus, that's not your identity. But as soon as I say I am something, then I'm making it my identity. I'm making it my core. Does that make sense? My core identity, and so it's it's not. I, I'm a child of God. I have God's DNA in me. Yeah, man. I might I might still struggle with drinking or whatever, but uh, I, I'm 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 on a different track now, and and I'm going to avail myself of the encouragement I need to say no to that, and I'm going to be going to draw some people close to me, and we're going to resist that together. But it's not my identity. It's not who I am. I am free from that. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's, that's yeah. I mean, you could just ask this. Uh, is Jesus an addict? No, he's not, is he? And Jesus, I have his DNA in me now. So, Okay, so the fourth thing is this, a new way to relate to the Father. Uh, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Who loves perfectly? God does, doesn't he? Okay. So the love of God, he loves perfectly. The more I embrace him, John knew this. John knew the love of Jesus. He knew it. The more I know it, the less I fear. So he says, perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What it means is I haven't yet grasped fully the massive, perfect love that God has for me. doesn't mean that I need to be perfected somehow. Perfected means simply I haven't matured to the level that I really see that. That takes revelation from the Holy Spirit. That's something to ask Him for. Just Holy Spirit, show me the Father's love. I've read about it. I've memorized the verses I've heard it preached about, give me revelation about this now. And when he does, then we, we, we begin to step out of fear. Now, um, we are taught to fear, though. Even Christmas has a lot of fear taught into it. Uh, is David here? Where's David? David Booker? David, stand up. Okay, this is David Booker. Just stay standing there for a second. All right. Okay, David is from Switzerland. He's been here the last three, four months doing an internship. We've had the privilege of him living in our home with us. So uh, this is David's last day here. So let's all, you, man, give the guy a hug before he leaves, yeah. All right. All right. We love you, David. You can just nod your head yes or no, or you can say yes or no. But David told me the other day that he remembers in kindergarten, the kindergarten teacher telling them, Santa Claus sees everything you do. David wanted to know how, and she said he looks through the window. (laughs) So David said he would go around peeking out the windows to make sure Santa wasn't watching. But the message was this. If you're good, he'll give you candy. If you're bad, he will send one of his servants to beat you with a stick. Right? Okay, thanks, David. Didn't mean to embarrass you there. Thanks, man. Um, There is actually a, um, a Christmas myth in the rural outlands of Germany of a guy called Belschnickel. And he's dirty and ragged looking and he carries a bundle of sticks around with him. And if you're good, he gives you candy. If you're bad, he beats you with the sticks. So a lot of us have grown up in church systems where we're told God has candy in one hand and a stick in the other. And if you're good, he's going to be nice to you. He's going to like you. But if you're bad, you're going to get whacked. Anybody grow up with that? It's guilt. Guilt Guilt-inducing, insecure I mean, how can I, how can I know the Father's love if I believe any, at any second he's going to beat me with a stick because I messed up? And listen, the Father's love is perfect. He loves us perfectly. We don't have to fear him. Okay, we don't have to fear him. Now, I, no, we've, I've preached on the fear of God before, and you can go back and find one of those messages. But, but not fear in the sense of the way, like, like, like we experience it, where, oh my, I can't do enough to please God. And if I just do a little bit more, then maybe God will be happy with me. That, that's not it. We, we don't have to fear God. We enter into his presence. We experience his love. And, and when you know Jesus, you know that love. So um, a new way to relate to the Father. And finally, a new sense of spiritual momentum. He says, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so he's saying here that all of us, if we look back, we can see growth. If you know Jesus, you can look back and you can see progress and growth. All right? So that means uh, you might have to take some time away. You might have to sit back for a few hours and look back a year or two years. How did I think? How did I handle this type of situation then, and how do I handle it now? And you begin to see growth and progress. You see how you're so much more open to the love of Jesus and and embracing his purpose for your life and for the world as well. And so it's just these five simple things that uh, you look at, and they are like concrete evidences of uh, our our new life in Jesus, a new love for people, just a new grasp of truth, a new heart to follow Jesus, a new way to relate to the Father, and a new sense of spiritual momentum. So um, we're going we're gonna to go into worship right now. We have a, the rest of this service is going to be powerful and awesome, and so just open your hearts to him, and uh, Wilson's going to come up and lead us through the next st- stage.